song tonight. <laughs> that uh, while on the sea, man, we need to do that again. Tonight we are going to talk about the church in Ephesus and conclude our short series on that, uh, looking at that church. It's been uh, obviously a logical sequence. We talked about in the first lesson the beginnings of the church. We looked at Paul and his work in uh, Ephesus and uh, others that followed him. We looked in the second lesson at the church being established, really, as one of the leading congregations would have, I'm sure, been considered in their day to be uh, one of the most influential. And if you had asked people for all, from all appearances, um, they probably would have believed that church would have continued a long time in their faithfulness. As we're going to remind ourselves tonight, they were a church who did not, and I stress did not, buy into the doctrinal errors of the day, but they were what we would call sound, they were faithful, and therefore you would probably look at that church and you would think, man, they're going to be a leading congregation, influential for many years to come. But tonight, unfortunately, we talk about um, the view, at least, the prophetic view that the Bible gives of the death of the church in Ephesus. And sadly enough, when you, when you look at any congregation, and, I, and you, know, you guys know I like studying history, um, especially ancient history, but I also like looking at what is often called restoration history, and that is as people began and churches of various denominations began studying themselves uh, out of where they had come from and into uh, being closer and closer to the truth and thus restoring uh, the truth to their individual church or group of churches. And all of that happening in this country in the 1700s beginning and probably more well known by people in the early 1800s, very early, with men like Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, they may ring a bell to some of you, they may not. But when you look at all of that, if you look at any period in time that you know of the church or that you can have a pretty good idea, you know, you can go back and look at some of the persecution even a thousand years ago, maybe going on in Germany. And you may not be interested in all of that kind of thing. But I find it very interesting that when churches emerge and when they, you know, fight for the truth and latch on to the truth and they do battles for the truth, that in their generation, they're very strong. And perhaps that carries on for a generation or two, but by and large, a church does not last, relatively speaking, for very long. It doesn't matter how strong the congregation is. It doesn't matter how large it was in its day, how influential it was, etc., etc. And so, if you look the entire world over, if you were to say, let's go into all the world, let's look at churches of Christ, for example, the world over, you would not find many churches, even a hundred years old, you would find no churches that I know of in the entire world that would stretch back much more than you know, 200 years. And that would be a rare situation if you found it. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, because it's the truth. 
And if it's been the case for 2,000 years, if that has been the case, then that should say to us, you know, be warned. Because that can happen. You know, this church, it's my understanding, looking at the history of the church in this area, that this church maybe had its beginnings in the 50s, and by the 60s was a flourishing church. But you should understand that if we're talking about 50, 60 years, we are talking about in the life of a church, an old church. It doesn't seem that way. You know, I mean, we look at it and we're like, wow, you know, 50, 60 years, that shouldn't be an old church, but it is in the normal scheme of things. Now, God never said, you're not going to find a verse, and I'm not going to turn to one where God ever said a church should only last for 50 years or 100 years or 200 years at the most. That's strictly the problem of human beings. It was in Ephesus. It is in East Orange. And you have to be aware so, so often the Bible is saying, beware or be aware of what is the case. When we look at any given church, if we were to look at this one here, and as man typically does, and I guess for, and I told you this morning I'll be a Christian, 40 years tomorrow. For the last 40 years, I've heard people talk about various congregations, and such and such church is a strong church, and such and such church is a weak church. And I rarely ever hear someone really describe a congregation maybe the way I would think that it really should be described. Because though we speak of churches as being strong or weak, and we have criteria for measuring that, you know, what they believe, what they do, what they practice, how many people go there, how many, you know, how, how many people are very old, how many people are very young, how many children they have, all that criteria that we use. Even though we measure them as strong or weak, I think it's more complicated than that. That at any given time, let's say East Orange right now, if we were to do an evaluation of East Orange, a fair assessment of it, I think a church, no matter who they are, is likely strong in some areas. Now, there would be some that you know are pretty well close to death, and they would not be. But at any given time, a church that is considered a vibrant congregation would be strong in certain areas, but I think we would have to admit, and if we're going to be fair about the church here and warn about it, we'd have to admit it's weak in other areas. And when you assess it that way, that's a long way toward saying let's continue to be strong in the areas where we are strong and get stronger. And let's try to overcome some of the weaknesses so that we don't let them fester and grow to the point that that weakness you know, becomes like gangrene and takes over and kills this congregation. A fair picture of Ephesus, if we were to apply that to the church in the New Testament, I think it reveals to us just such a church. That you can't look at it and say, oh boy, look at that church, right? that is a strong church. Well, it was. And yet at the same time that it would be described as strong, Paul is warning, the Holy Spirit is warning through Paul, you've got some weaknesses. And so you would have to admit, and Paul does admit in Scripture, and we're privileged to see that, that even though you guys are strong, you got some weaknesses, and we'll see that it is those weaknesses that eventually lead to the death of the church. It's not that they didn't have the strengths. They did have them. But eventually, the warnings that had been given to Ephesus, etc., Regardless of all the strength they had, eventually they died. 
And then it's not like they died after a thousand years. They died as we would consider it fairly quickly. They are privileged not just to have had an apostle address them personally, and those that he commissioned, like we talked about last time, a Timothy, perhaps a Tychicus, maybe even a second apostle John, there's great indication of that, other strong individuals like Onesimus, and perhaps even to have been privileged to have Jesus' own mother Mary living there. Now, there is some evidence at least to that. But regardless of all of that, they died. And they died really fairly quickly. And I want us to look at some of the reasons why. Go with me back to the book of 1 Timothy. And let's just start there. When we read passages like in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, for example, I think sometimes that we, we tend, as students of the Bible, to read through some of the history part of it and kind of get over that to maybe the power verses. I could read a couple of verses out of you know 1 Timothy 1, uh, for example, verse 8 is often lifted out. We know the law is good if a man use it lawfully, but have no idea what context that's being spoken in. You know. and, and there are other things throughout this. You know, We might look down at Paul's own statements about God being merciful to him and so forth. But if you realize what this, the context in which some of this is being said, you realize the weaknesses and the struggles that that very strong church at Ephesus was having. Let's put this in historical perspective. Paul would have first visited Ephesus, as far as we know, at the end of what is commonly called the second missionary journey, I call it the third. But that would have been around the year 51, 52, AD 51, 52 at the latest. The church, he would have come back and spent some three years there. So when we see in Acts 19 all that great work and that great strength and the church just burgeoning in membership and you know knowledge and, and even appointing elders and all of that, we're talking about somewhere roughly around AD 55. And then if we look at Paul writing 1 Timothy, we can be talking no later, and it doesn't even have to be this late, than A.D. 65. So what I'm saying is, when Paul writes what we're about to read, it has gone from an, a, an extremely well-established, strong church, and strong enough in less than five years to appoint elders. Now that's something. It's gone from that to what Paul will say less than ten years later. We were studying 1 Timothy 1 downstairs in our men's class, and we were talking about how a church can change so Dramatically, drastically, in a generation's time, even a half a generation's time. I think Ed made the comment, man, three years' time, a church can really change. And, and that's true. And, and you see evidence of it in Ephesus. So let's read here. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we see Paul saying to Timothy in verse 3, As I have besought you, I begged you, to remain at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. And that you might charge some that they teach, notice this phrase, no other doctrine. And if you look at it in the original, that's a compound word, and Paul rarely uses it, only a couple of times, but it means a different doctrine, a different, a completely different teaching. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Less than ten years after that great strength, 
Paul is having to say first thing to the guy he sends to preach and carry on the work, charge some. Well, what does that mean? It means there are people there that have already left the truth. It means within that church, in less than ten years, people are already teaching other doctrine, different teaching. Notice verse 4. Neither give heed to fables, the King James says, and endless genealogies that only serve questions rather than godly edifying or building up in the faith, which is in faith, so do. What is he saying there? Well, if you look at some of this language that's, that's used, the, the fables there is, a, is the word from we, which we get myth. Made up stories. Things that fascinate people. And we're fascinated by myths. I mean, you, you have people today and they are still talking about myths. I mean, I watched the television, an old television program, but it wasn't that old, the other night. And they were talking about a myth from ancient Greek mythology. Those beliefs have long since passed, but the stories fascinate us. Who here doesn't know the stories of, you know, maybe Zeus or Jupiter and Mercury? And a lot of us studied Greek mythology in high school or whatever, or college. The stories still fascinate us. If I throw the name Hercules out there, you know Hercules. Hercules was a myth from nearly 2,500 years ago. Why are we still so fascinated? With such stories. Well, it's no different in the religious world. Rather than being fascinated with the stories that are concrete in the Word of God, people will flee to made-up stories. And made-up stories become the basis of their beliefs. How many times have you been in a discussion with someone? How many times have I been in a discussion and trying to talk about something maybe as serious as baptism or the Lord's Supper, you know, having observing that each first day of the week, and had the defense of what someone is doing being thrown back at me from a made-up phrase, a pithy statement. You know, I've told you often about how my grandmother would try to answer baptism with what she had heard her father say. And it was nothing but a repetition. Go into the water a center, come up out a wet center. It sounded good, but it was no argument. It doesn't answer anything. Well, these people were telling stories, and there were... Some false doctrines that were prevalent in the day. One of them was this multifaceted false doctrine that's lumped under the heading of Gnosticism. And all Gnosticism means is that it's a word for knowledge. And it was people who fancied themselves to have greater insight, greater knowledge. Knowledge that, trans and we were talking about Christians buying into it, knowledge that transcended the Bible. More than what Paul would teach. Beyond what Paul would understand. And you can see how people would buy into that kind of thing. The secrets that people know and begin to pass around. That's what he's talking about here. And the in endless genealogies. All the discussions that surrounded Judaism. And we know Judaizing teachers from the book of Galatians. Well now, 20 years later, when Paul is writing to Timothy... That's developed into a sort of mystical Judaism. And it's a hybrid of Grecian philosophies, a lot of Gentiles coming in, together with some of the things in the Bible, especially Old Testament. And it all goes to a philosophical discussion that will rage, and I mean rage, for nearly 400 years about Jesus. Was he human? Was he God? 
Did he seem to be human? Did he seem to be God? Was he some kind of half and half? Was he like the Greek gods, you know, half bull, half man? What was Jesus? Who is Jesus? And all the genealogies came into that. And you know, the Jews, they would trace the genealogies of kings. They had to all trace back to David. And the genealogies of high priests, they had to all trace back to Aaron. And Jesus doesn't fit the bill, certainly, of tracing back to Aaron, because he comes from the tribe of Judah. And all of this obscurity about him, was he really Joseph's son? Was he really some kind of miraculous you know, whatever coming on Mary and all of that. And so is he really David's descendant? And that developed into all kinds of questions about God and about Jesus and passages that came into discussion like Colossians 1 and John 1 especially have lasted even unto this day. Pick up, for example, certain translations, notably the Jehovah's Witness, and read John 1, 1 to 3. You will not find in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. No, you will find in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was a God. Now, why do I get off on all of that? Because that's what's going on. In less than ten short years, Timothy is having to do battle with that kind of thing in a church that Paul spent the longest amount of time ever in running a school, teaching people, and that influence went out through all of that part of the country. We see that in Acts 19, but that's not what you've got going on in Timothy. Let's read on. Look at verse 5. Now, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart. Now, this would be one of the verses we lift out. Why is that said in this context? We remember that when we read Revelation 2. The end of the commandment, the, the, the end, the summation, the final point you reach as a Christian is not to find how many questions you can fight about. Not to see which one of us has special insight, special knowledge, or has learned some new thing. The end of the commandment is love. And I would suggest to you Love exactly what God teaches us for Him, love for Jesus, love for our brethren. Love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. What does that mean? My conscience is clear. To the best of my ability, I'm doing exactly what the Lord said. I'm not looking for any hidden truths or hidden meanings. I'm not trying to find some way out of this or way out of that. I'm just listening to what Jesus says and doing it. And my conscience is clear. And a faith unfeigned. Now what that means is an unhypocritical faith. I'm not a hypocrite. I believe what I believe. It's, you know, it's fine with me, and, and it really is. And I say this to you, and I think you know it. You can walk up to me and ask me what I believe about anything. If you want to know my opinion about something, I'm going to stress to you it's my opinion. It doesn't mean very much. You can have it if you want it, if I choose to give it, but it's not worth much. But if you want to know what I believe about what God teaches, oh, well, that's different. And you can ask me that about anything. And I will either say, I believe this, and I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Or sometimes I will tell you, as I did the other night in a study, I'm not sure. 
I've looked at this for 40 years now, and I'm not sure. Maybe someday I will be sure about what I think it means, but it's not a hypocritical thing. And that's the way God would have us to be as we conduct ourselves. So, Timothy, you teach them that. And notice as he goes on, verse 6, from which some having swerved. What is he saying? That's already going on there. These are not just warnings about, you know, church at Ephesus, if you're not careful, you might fall into some of this. He's not doing that. No, he's, he's saying to Timothy, you've got these problems already in Ephesus. And notice again, how long did it take them? Less than ten years. You know, most of us in this room tonight have been in, in this church for several years. Some of you have been in this church as much as, man, Ed and Marlene, you guys, Trudy, I mean, you guys must have been here close to 50 years now. Less than ten years. And this kind of mess is prevalent in Ephesus. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That's what the King James says. And you'll have all kinds of translations for that. Some of, it, some of you will have empty chatter. What the word literally means is worthless logic. Which is an oxymoron, isn't it? Worthless logic. But here's what it was. People carried away with reasoning like Grecian philosophers. Reasoning, and it starts out like this. Well, if this were so, and that were so, then this would be the, the, the conclusion. And you know, you know, that's the most basic sophistry. When you study philosophy, you start off with that hypothetical situation and possibly a second hypothetical situation, and you can draw a conclusion, and the conclusion is logical. The only problem is the first two statements were not. And so it means nothing. But if you're a person who's carried away with that, I saw this kind of stuff at Liberty all the time, and I would caution every chance I got. Because when we're studying this whole thing of premillennialism, you know, we, we might go to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about in Daniel 2. And if the foot represented this, then the toes, and God never spoke of the toes, would represent this, and then that would mean this. And I'd say, guys, the foot, you're, you're told what it means. It doesn't represent that. In other words, they go to it and they start talking about Russia or Iraq. Or something like that. I said, we're already told what it means. It doesn't mean that. And as far as the toes are concerned, if God had wanted us to know what the toes represented, He would have told us. But He doesn't. So the conclusion you're drawing is illogical. It's worthless. It's vain jangling. Now I realize, like the guy said to me in one of the classes down there, notably, said to me, and, you know, people latched on to it, your beliefs, if I believed that, it would be boring. Because I kept going to this, and people are tired of talking about what this believes. Let's hear something new. Let's hear something exciting. Van Jenkins. And Paul said, verse 7, Timothy, this is what I'm telling you. They're desiring to be teachers of, notice, the law. Isn't it amazing that a person that 
bases what they believe on either sophistry, false logic, vain jangling, or made-up stories, will claim to be a great doctor of the law. That's incredible. They desire to be teachers of the law. But Paul said they understand neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. In other words, they don't understand. They're claiming to teach this and they're claiming to teach it with their false conclusions and their made-up stories and their endless, seemingly endless genealogies and references to them and they don't have a clue what they're talking about because they're not going to this and studying. They're not spending their time and thought on this. They're not, like you remember I cited a couple of weeks ago or whatever, whenever it was about the idea of when I first started preaching and I would go out on a daily basis, find some quiet place, pull out the Bible and say, let's start reading today and get to know something about whatever book it might be. And I didn't know much. They're not spending their time doing that. They're not locking themselves away, spending hour upon hour upon hour, week upon week, year upon year, like people who really know the Word of God. Like the guy in Alabama that tragically died, you know, back in December, my friend. That guy knew the Bible. Man, he knew the Bible. And you would not be able to pick up a Bible and you could flop it open anywhere and start reading. He'll tell you where it is. And then he could talk about it all day without ever looking. That doesn't come without work. Lots of work. Much time. Now Paul said, what you're dealing with are people who want to claim to be teachers, experts, authorities on the law of God. And they don't know what they're talking about. And they have no clue what they're really trying to affirm, stand for. But we know, verse 8, the law is good. This is good if you use it correctly. It's got the answers. I said this morning, and I believe it, Jesus has all the answers about every part of life. But you've got to know what those answers are. And you've got to take the time and put in the work. Now, why am I saying all of that? Well, how does a church go from the Apostle Paul and these other great teachers How does it go from that to less than ten years they're having to be reminded of what seems to be the most basic truth? If I were to ask you, for example, what is the most basic thing we stand for here at East Arm? I've heard people in this last week make this statement about talking to friends or whomever it might be and making the point to them that what we try to do here is just simply know what the Bible says and do it. That's what we stand for. That's the mark we want on this church. As much as anything, we want to be known for people who really care about what the Bible says. How does the church go from that to this mess? And as you read through the pages of Timothy, it's not just here. I mean, James read for us earlier. Go over again to 2 Timothy. You know, and I'll I'll go back and forth here with some verses, but go again to 2 Timothy. It's not surprising It's in this context Paul would say this great statement of inspiration reminding us of where the Word of God came from and that it is, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, able to make you wise unto salvation. And that he reminds them, verse 16, that it is all Scripture. Notice what he's not saying. It's not the myths. It's not the endless genealogies. 
It's not the sophistry. It's not all of those things. No, it is Scripture. It is what is written that is given by inspiration of God. That's what is God-breathed. And that and that alone is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in what's right, righteousness. That the man of God, the person of God, the Christian, may be completely furnished, completely equipped for every good work. And then he goes into what James read. Look at chapter 4 again. I charge you, Timothy. Now notice, I find this interesting, and and for a long time I thought this was kind of funny, and so I'm going to share it with you. He starts off in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, and said, I beg you to stay. And now I'm telling you to do this. But he's saying, this is how important this is. In view of, James' translation read, in view of the Lord's coming and the kingdom, the church, as we talked about this morning, being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you preach the word. You avoid all of this other stuff. You know, somebody comes to you, you know, with the latest twist of whatever. Timothy, what do you think about so-and-so? Timothy, what do you think about such and such? You know, that still happens today. Wes gets it. I get it. We're not talking about just from members here. We're talking about preachers that we get in touch with and we talk with and people that we contact and that contact us and how someone will make a statement or say something. You know, you go back home or you go, you know, visit somewhere or whatever. And people, you know, what do you think about so-and-so? The latest thing that's going around, the latest new twist on things, the latest interpretation of something or whatever. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is when they come to you with that, you just preach the word. And you'll notice how he goes through all of this as James read for us. You know, people are going to want certain teachers that tickle their ears. Tell them some new, fascinating little twist on something. You preach the word. And the point is, in verse 4, they will turn away. Now, who is he saying this to? Timothy, where is he saying this? Ephesus. They will turn away. A strong church. You couldn't have one any stronger. Sometimes people talk about the strength of a church because of the preacher that started that congregation. Well, Paul started this one. And sometimes people will talk about a, a church and how strong it is because they have elders. Well, they had elders. And Timothy, this is what's going to happen. Not a possibility. It's already happening, and this is where it's going to lead to. And you just preach the word. You watch, you be careful about everything, verse 5. You do the work of an evangelist. What is an evangelist? He's a guy that takes the law, the word of God, and he teaches it. And it's that simple. His job isn't complicated in that sense. You know what your job is. My job is to know what this says and teach it. To understand it. To help other people to understand it. That's my job. A lot of work if you're going to know what it says. And you're going to have to deal with people, the majority of whom, do not want to know what the truth says. But your job is not complicated. You do the work of an evangelist, he said. You Make, the King James says, make full proof of your ministry. What he's saying there is, you prove yourself true to the service you've been given. And if you go through the books of First and Second Timothy, and I'm not going to read every passage, but I've listed them for you. 
As you read through these chapters, you realize Paul is going to say that again and again. Look at chapter 4, verse 13 beginning, when he'll say, Let no man despise your youth. We don't know how old Timothy was. Sometimes people will talk about, you know, Timothy started out as a teenager, and I believe that. But we're nearly 20 years removed from that. He's not an old man. He's maybe Wes's age. And yet someone could come along with some brand new twist on things and could say to Wes, oh, you're still young. I remember those days. They don't say that anymore. (laughs) But I remember those days. You're still young. You'll learn. You'll know better. Well, you know, if you know the truth, you know the truth. It doesn't matter if you're 8 years old or 80. Timothy, don't let anyone disregard your youth. You just be true. And you'll notice how he says you be an example. And I want you to note again, and I want you to remember this when we get to Revelation 2. When he says in verse 12, be an example of the brethren in word, in manner of life, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, I want you to give attendance. You spend some time with what? Reading and exhortation and doctrine. Those are important things to attend to. And don't neglect the gift that's in you that was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, perhaps the elders. As he goes on to say, meditate upon these things. That's important. We talked about meditation before, but it is so important for a preacher to meditate on Scripture, on the truth. That's when you start taking all these bits and pieces and putting it together. You need to spend time doing that, you know, and you can do that in a whole lot of different ways. You can go sit on a stump like I talked about the other day, or you can do what Wes does sometimes, go down to Dunkin' Donuts or wherever, and just sit quietly and meditate. Notice as Paul goes on here, give yourself entirely to them. All of this being a good example, attending to the Word, all of that kind of thing, that your profiting may appear to all. That's an interesting statement, and I'm not going to get it far off on this, but a little sidebar here. One of the reasons why you tell all these myths and made-up philosophies and come up with some new thing is because people watch you and they listen. Oh, Michael had a good idea on so-and-so. And they start spreading it around. And you know how that person feels when you do that? Yeah, I did that. I've seen that kind of thing. You be known, Timothy, for a person that goes back to the old teaching of the Word of God, and you teach that. And if somebody speaks your name, it's okay if they say you're boring. It's okay if they say, you know, you're not with it. You're not, you know, you're not with the times. And all. that's all. That's okay. As long as they look at you and they see a person who's really in tune with what God says. Because verse 16, you take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. And you continue in them. Because in doing this, you're going to help others, save others. And you're going to save yourself. And there are verses like that all through this passage. Well, let's wrap this up. Their problem in Ephesus was not just all of the false doctrine. But I spent all of this time because I want to impress upon you that they had a war on their hands. Unless you think that every member of the church in Ephesus was buying into all of this stuff that we've been talking about, they weren't. But the ones who weren't buying into it were having to fight it. 
Timothy was having to consume his time. I mean, you won't find anything talked more about in First and Second Timothy for Timothy to do with his time than fight this kind of stuff. So his time is consumed with it. The members of the church, their time is consumed with it. And they fight this war. And we ask the question, were they successful? Let's go over to Revelation 2 for a moment. Because now we're moving as much as 30 years, certainly no more than some 25 in the future. I mean, no less than 25. So 25, 30 years in the future, and now Revelation is written. By the Apostle John, of course, and who quite possibly was there. And if we go back and we believe the things that are said about history and all of this kind of thing, Timothy could have still been there. And if not Timothy, then maybe Onesimus, depending on when exactly we're talking about. But you may still have an apostle there, and you may have some prominent teachers there, and now we get Jesus addressing the church at Ephesus, circa 90-95 A.D. And this is what he says. And I'm not going to find it in chapter 4, so let me go back to 2. So chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's obviously Jesus from chapter 1. The one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Jesus will say that about every church in Revelation 2 and 3, and he can say it about every church the world over, including ours. Jesus could come and say, and if he were to address us, I think the first thing he probably would say is, He's orange, I know your works. And then he would begin to list things like he does for them. So let's read it. I know your works and your labor. Now that word labor means your hard work. And your patience, your endurance. You've lasted through some things. Maybe, and I think he is talking about all that stuff we were just talking about. Your endurance and how you cannot bear them which are evil. That's a good thing. They're not putting up with, and that's what the word bear means. They're literally not putting up with people that are evil. And you have tried or tested them which say they are apostles, and they are not. You think about that. Paul, an apostle, was definitely there in all likelihood, and I don't know this for sure. Peter went through there, and John went through there. So they may have had, out of 13 apostles, the advantage of three of them. Certainly two. And here we say, hear Jesus saying, some other guys that want to come along and want to say they are apostles. What does an apostle mean? It means someone sent with a commission. It's like a person who wants to pop up out of nowhere with no authority to do so and say, God sent me. God said to me, God told me to tell you this. Well, you've tested those people. And you've found them liars. That's a good thing. And you have borne, verse 3. That is, you've put up with all of this mess that you've had to put up with. And you have endurance. You lasted through it. And for my name's sake, Jesus says, you have labored. That's a good thing. Because through all of that, You stayed true to Jesus, and you kept fighting for His authority. And you've not fainted. That's a great thing. When you find people strong enough, how long are we talking about here? Paul is writing in AD 65. 
Jesus is summing it up some 30 years later. How long did it go on? Well, we know the false doctrines they're fighting went on well past this time, so they may still be having to fight it. But they've stayed true. And so you'd look at that, and I think most people would look at that, and most people have looked at churches that went through things like that and stayed true to the truth and said, that's a strong church. Now I want to tell you something I've observed in the last 40 years. And I started seeing it when I first came in. People would say, they would use phrases like, sound church. I didn't know what that meant, so I'd ask. What's a sound church? Or strong church? So I'd ask. What's the difference in a strong church and a weak church? And this is generally what I found. A sound gospel preacher, a strong gospel preacher, a sound church, a strong church, was a church that had gone through the thread of innovations and false doctrines, and, you know, we have them in every generation, had resisted those things, had fought those things, had defeated those things, just like Ephesus. And they were still true to the truth. Now, here's the problem with that. I went to one of those to preach. And by every estimation on people from the outside looking in, that was a strong church. But it wasn't. If you brought up certain doctrines that they had fought wars over, they were strong. And they knew the truth, and they stood for the truth. But in the midst of all that time and effort that had been spent, Fighting those wars, they lost some. And Jesus says it to Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because you have left your first love. Now I think most people believe, and I'm one of them, that the first love of any church and the first love of any Christian is supposed to be That's why we come to Him in the first place. He died for me. He went to the cross. He made it possible for me to go to heaven. He takes my sins away. I love Him for that. But you get all caught up in the workings of a congregation, in the threats to a congregation, in the new twist on things that come along, in the false beliefs and the threat of this and this person has this you know, moral problem or that moral problem and you get all caught up in that. And the business of the church, the running, the everyday keeping it going in the direction it's supposed to be going just consumes you. It happens to preachers. It happens to elders. It happens to members of congregations, it happens to whole churches. And when you lose your love for Jesus, when you lose the point of it all, you remember those verses back in Timothy? And I said, hold on to that. What did Paul keep saying to Timothy? Don't just fight the war, man! Hold on to the love for the Lord. Because that's what it's all about. Why do I want to be true to the truth? Why do I want to do it just like Jesus said? Not because it's right. I'm right, you're wrong. I want to do it because I love Him. 
He went to the cross and died for me. And now He looks at me, having given me more than anyone's ever begun to give me, and said, this is what I want you to do, Michael. Will you do this for me? I love it. I want to do that for Him. You Christians at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You fight the wars and you win the wars, but you don't love me. And you know that happens. You get worn out. You get battle weary. And it can happen in spiritual warfare just like it can out on a battlefield in Afghanistan. You just get tired of it. And you lose the love. That vibrant love you had for Jesus. And Jesus said, I... I counsel you to remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you once were. Repent. Do the first works. Not just the deep wars that you fought. Do the first works. Or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place except you repent. I know, verse 6, notice how he reminds them that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Most people think this was the latest doctrinal threat. I know you do. And I hate it too. But don't stop loving me in the midst of the fight. Now we know they left their first love. And Paul had already warned what's going to happen is you're going to have people that come from your own midst. Acts 20. Remember we read that. And they're going to rise up and they're going to take over and people are going to follow them. And that's going to be the end of the church of Ephesus. And it was. They'll hold three major councils in the 400s. And they have long since ceased to be a simple congregation of people who love Jesus. The message tonight is let's not let that happen here. It's not in our lifetime. Here tonight, and you're not a Christian. You believe in Jesus. And you know that He died for you, and you want to confess He's the Son of God. You want to repent, to change your life, and live your life just doing what He wants you to do, because you love Him. Tonight, you'll be baptized. And in that simple act of obedience, the Lord will wash away all the sins you've ever committed. You will be a child of God. Maybe you're here and you've done that. And yet you know you need to give your life back to Jesus. Why don't you please do that? I'll be standing.